Well, it is good to be with you. Those of you watching online, everyone here again, my, my name's Nate. I don't think I introduced myself earlier. I'm Nate, one of the pastors on staff here, but really good to be together. And uh, we're in our second week of the Advent season um, and excited to see what God's going to say to us today. I don't know about you, when I think of Christmas, I get excited about giving uh, gifts to my kids, you know, things that I know that they will enjoy and like. But there's, a, there's sometimes a little uh, phrase that appears on the boxes of some of the gifts I might buy for them that, that strikes fear to my very heart. Um, really, when I, when I see those phrases, uh, you know, sometimes I'll just, I'll just even put the gift back because I don't even want to engage with what that phrase is. Anybody know what phrase I'm talking about, this phrase that scares us as parents? Collect the whole sack. No. Batteries not included. Not batteries not included. I can find batteries pretty easy. There it is. Okay. Some assembly required. Yes. Some assembly required. When I see those words on a box, I don't know about you. If I'm honest, I'm like, I'm going to just put that back. I don't care how much the kid wants that gift. I, my love is limited. All right. And I'm not, <laughs> I can't go down that road. Uh, but we do that as parents, right? There's times when we get into putting gifts together. And um, I, I remember one time I purchased a bed for one of my kids. She was moving from like toddler bed to a big girl bed, we called it. And she was so excited. And, we, and so we wanted to surprise her Christmas morning with a big girl bed. So we went to Ikea and picked one up. And if you ever shop at Ikea, some assembly required, right? You got to put that thing together. So uh, we went and got that bed. And uh, we, uh, at our church we were at, I was helping out at another church and they had Christmas Eve services in the evening. And the last one started at 11 p.m. and ended at midnight. So I got home about 1230 that night and had to put this Ikea bed together. And uh, I don't know, if, have you ever used Ikea stuff? You know that the instructions, there's no words, just pictures. And so, you know, you feel a little bit like you're out on the field with some world-renowned archaeologist, you know, reading hieroglyphics or something to put, uh, you know, part A into part B and to try to get this thing together. So it took me a couple hours, and, you know, by 2, 3.30 in the morning, I was finally done and headed off to bed. And, of course, kids don't let you sleep in on Christmas, so I knew it was going to be a rough day. Um, but she was so excited when she saw that little, that, that bed. She was just overjoyed. I mean, it was all worth it, Right right? Tell me it was worth it, because I'm still not sure. Yeah, it was worth it, and uh, we got to celebrate that with her. But this is the kinds of things we do as parents. I was reading this week about some um, encouragement online about how to uh, do this assembly stuff with your kids' toys. And it's, first thing it said was, don't use the picture on the outside of the box as the instructions, right? Don't just put it together based on the picture. It said, use the manual. Don't skip pages. You know, don't assume you know what's coming next. Just follow the instructions. And then the third, third idea was, uh, take breaks and drink lots of water. And it was like, <laughs> what kind of breaks? You know, emotional breaks, physical breaks, you know, mental breaks, you know, like all of the above. Um, and, and then the last, the best uh, advice though was, if you've got a toy that needs to be put together, give it to your kid as it is and put it together with them. Like make it a project you do together. So instead of just a gift, it's like an event that you get to have with each other. And I'm like, man, that's such great advice. I wish someone had told me about that before the, the baby bed, I mean, the bed of the debacle of 2003, you know, with Ikea there. Um, but that's, that's a great idea. So if you still have assembly required toys, do it with your kid. I think that's really a fun way to go. Uh, this is just one of the stressors of the Advent season, one of the things that causes us to be anxious and hurried and kind of frantic during Christmas. And uh, we're talking about simple Christmas because we, we want to live in a different way. We want to engage in this season in a different way. And, and there, but there's so many things that can cause distress in our lives. Some assembly required, that's just one thing. I think about all the Christmas parties that we might be invited to, or New Year's Eve gatherings. You know, our calendar seems to, it can possibly fill up with those things. 
Or, or I think about family and friends that come to stay with us. We love having them with us, but it is certainly one more thing. You know, it's another thing that we have to work out. Or those of you that are dating, I mean, I think about dating relationships during Christmas is so difficult because you want to get the perfect gift, but you just don't know them that well yet, you know, and how difficult that can be. Um, there's some of these stressors that come at, at us, and, and as our bank accounts are slowly going down, as we're buying more and more gifts, or, or worse yet, our credit card statements going up and up and up, uh, these are things that can stress us out during Christmas. And into all these feelings, all these realities, uh, all the heaviness that can sometimes feel like the Christmas season, uh, Scripture has something to say to us. The Bible wants to encourage us to live into a different way. And I'm so thankful that it does. Uh, one of the authors of Scripture, Paul, he was a first century religious fanatic that Jesus got a hold of and appeared and just changed his life. And he began to start small churches all around the ancient world. And, and one of the churches was in the Greek city of uh, Philippi. And he would later write letters to these, these churches he started. And he wrote this letter in the New Testament. It's called Philippians. And in Philippians 4, we read these words from Paul, God speaking through him. He said, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will protect your hearts. It will protect your minds because of what Jesus has done. In the midst of all the things that make us anxious, all the things that steal our peace, the scriptures say that God's peace will come and stand guard around our lives. When we take the things that make us anxious and stressed out, when we put those before God, his, his peace, and I love how Paul says we can't even understand it. It's a peace beyond our understanding. It just comes over us in the midst of our anxious lives, that his peace will be there. It doesn't matter what you are facing. It doesn't matter how big the issue is, how scary the news, how unfair the decision feels to you. God's peace can make all the difference. And I want to be clear, when we talk about God's peace, peace is not the absence of trouble or danger. The peace that God brings us, it doesn't mean that life will go every single way you want it to go. When our Heavenly Father offers us peace, it's a promise of His presence with us through the storms, through the hard things that we have to face. The peace of God that He offers us, it carries us through the anxious seasons of our lives, the sadness and the suffering we sometimes have to go through. It may not remove that hardship, but it will hold you in the midst of it. And scripture tells about this kind of peace in story after story that we come to in the Bible. Times when, when hard days came on the people of God and God's peace was with them and real and held them. God's peace was, was in the lion's den with Daniel. It was in the fiery furnace. In, in Pharaoh's prison, God's peace was there. The floor of the Red Sea, the boat out on the Sea of Galilee as the storm swept through a Roman prison, even at the foot of the cross, God's peace was there with his people. Peace isn't the absence of trouble, but it's the promise of God's presence in the midst of it. And this morning, I want to look at a Christmas character that gives us a living example of what this peace looks like. Uh, one of the important ways that we can allow God's peace to come into our, our lives. This character's life reminds us that if you want to experience peace this Christmas, it's going to require less not more. You want to experience peace this Christmas, it's going to require less, not more. More is never the answer to finding the peace that God offers us. It takes less, less stuff, less worry, less striving, less busy, less of me, 
less of you, and we can find God's peace. So I want you to invite you to find your Bibles, uh, open up your Bible app on your phone. We're going to go to Luke chapter 1. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, and uh, the eyewitness reports of many came together. Luke gathered all these eyewitness reports to write down the stories of Jesus. And Luke chapter 1, verse 76, right towards, it's a long chapter, chapter 1, right, uh, 76 at the end of that chapter, where we hear the words of a man named Zechariah, who was a religious leader during that time. And when he was much older in life, and his wife Elizabeth was older, they had wished they'd had kids, but they didn't. He saw an angel, and the angel told him, you're going to have a child, a son, and you're going to name him John, and he's going to prepare people for the coming of the one who would bring peace, coming of the Messiah. And so John is born, and Zechariah speaks these words over his son. Verse 76 of chapter 1 in Luke here. And you, my child, he says, you, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. In verse 80, he says, And and John grew and became strong in the spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. If you look at verses uh, 78 and 79, Zechariah talks about this rising sun that will shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death. And, And for some of us who know some of the Old Testament prophets, it might take you back to some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, I think about Isaiah. Isaiah speaking for God in Isaiah chapter 9. He said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was looking forward to the one who would come and bring peace, who would come and bring light in dark places. John was going to get people ready for this light, the one who was coming, the Messiah, the one who would set things right, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who would be promised to us. And a few verses later in Isaiah 9, we read these words that were read earlier this morning with the Advent lighting. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This one who is coming, he's got different names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This child who would be born would bring peace to all those he rules over, all those in his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but, but I could use some peace this Christmas in the midst of life. I could use some peace. John prepared the way for the path of peace, those who would walk in this way of peace. What did that preparation look like? What are the, what are the things that John did to get people ready for this one who would come? Flip over to Luke chapter 3, just a, a chapter over here, a couple pages. This is many years later. John has grown up. And he's getting people ready for the one who would come. The end of chapter 1, Luke writes that John became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness, out in the wilderness. And it seems reasonable to think that he probably had lost his parents when he was younger in age. They were older when he was born. And he may have been living out in the wilderness with one of the Essene communities out there around Israel at the time. Uh, Those who, who, who lived out in the wilderness in a different kind of life. And when we read about the wilderness in first century in the New Testament, the wilderness was like a place where God did special things in the lives of people. God did special work out in the wilderness. So the fact that John was in the wilderness, it talks about God doing something in his life. 
We've just spent the fall talking about the people of God in the Old Testament wandering through the wilderness with Moses. They spent 40 years uh, leaving a life of slavery in Egypt and heading towards the promised land. And during those 40 years, God was doing work to help them live in a new way. You're no longer slaves, he was saying. You're the people of God. And here's what it looks like to live that way. 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness getting ready for his public life, his public teaching and ministry. Even Paul, that first century church planter we talked about, he spent three years in the wilderness getting ready for what God was calling him to. And so John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness coming from there. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 3 here, verses 1 through 3, our introduction to the world that John the Baptist came into. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idaria and Trachonitis. Now, Tetrarch means like a local governor, one of these civic leaders around them. One more Tetrarch, Lysantius, Tetrarch of Abilene, which we know is somewhere here in Kansas, right? Or there's one in Texas? (laughs) Texas, maybe Texas. During uh, the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is in the the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know he started reigning in around 11 AD. We've got the history to tell us that. So this would be around 25, 26 AD that, that John the Baptist came on the scene and there's seven different leaders mentioned in this opening, these opening verses of chapter 3. Seven different religious leaders and, and political leaders. And so John comes into a community that has a lot of different things going on. There's political Rome going on. There's political Israel. There's religious Israel. And John comes in among these leaders and begins to speak in the wilderness. Each of these leaders, part of their job was bringing peace to their people and to their communities. Their job was to keep the peace and create communities where people could live at peace and for the Roman Empire, they brought peace. It's called the Pax Romana, you know, this, this idea of the peace in that ancient world. And of course, that came through Rome because they had their authority over the people. They had the people under their thumb. And it was the power of Rome and fear of Rome that kept people in line. So if you tried to step out of line, Rome would come in quickly and correct you and get you back in line. That's the kind of peace that they brought, more of a peace under fear. And John here is talking about a different kind of peace, a peace that comes because of God's grace in our lives, a peace that was being promised by God. And this peace, he says, is prepared for us, and and we engage in it through the way of repentance and forgiveness. You see that at the end of of verse 3 there. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This peace is going to connect us to God and to one another, and it's going to come as we live into repentance and forgiveness. Now, repentance is just that idea of, of turning in a new direction, It means allowing our hearts and our minds to think in new ways instead of the ways we naturally think, to engage in the world around us in different ways. That's what it means to repent, to turn around and head in a new direction. And forgiveness allows us to live at peace with others and with God. So John came to bring this message of repentance and peace. And it's going to take less of our human efforts, less of our ability. It's, not going to, it's a peace that's not going to come because of more power from the government, more control in our lives, more punishment. All those things are not going to help us find this peace. This peace is going to come as we receive less of ourselves and more of who God is. If you want to experience peace this Christmas, it's going to require less, less of us and, and, and uh, not more of us. So John begins to speak about this idea of repentance 
And one of the questions I have as I read this is like, well, okay, what are you talking about, John? What is the baptism of repentance? What does it look like to live in forgiveness? And those who are listening to him ask the same question. Look down at verse 10, Luke chapter 3, verse 10. The people listen to what John the Baptist is saying, and they say, well, what should we do then? The crowds asked. He had a crowd around him, and they said, okay, so what are we supposed to do? Verse 11, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Verse 13, don't collect any more than you are required to, John told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and these would be Roman soldiers. Some soldiers asked him, and and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's so helpful to have these words from John to and kind of make it practical for us. What does it look like to live repentant? What does it look like to live in forgiveness? And he says, he boils it down. Basically, he says, try sharing what you have with others. Stop grabbing for more for yourself. Be content with where God has you in the world today. This idea of repentance means that we allow God to change our attitudes, change our hearts and our minds, that we would see our world in a different way. And that we would live in a different way. That we would share. It's not normal for us as humans to share. We see that in our kids, right? It's not normal for us to share. He says, be content with what you have. Don't grab for more for yourself. This is a different way that we are invited to live. As we live this way, as we live in repentance and forgiveness, we grow in our connection with people around us. And we grow in our connection with God. And the peace of God comes and settles down around us. I, I think about the day we moved here, uh, moved into our house here in Kansas City back in, in mid-June. It was a tough day for us. I was stressed out. I was distressed. I was frantic. It was uh, a lot of things didn't go right. Uh, some people here from church came and helped us that day because of the crisis we were in. And it was just a really tough day. I mean, I told you we lost box 58, right? I mean, we still haven't found box 58. Um, I, you know, Angela and I, were moving on. We're leaving it behind. But, uh, we, you know, it was a rough day. So finally, when the moving truck left, you know, I went and got our minivan and pulled it back into the driveway and went inside the house and just crashed for a little bit. And then I came back outside and there was a note on the windshield of our minivan. I took a picture of it. I think we have the picture here to share with you. On, on the minivan was this little note. Hi, welcome to the neighborhood. I picked up dinner for you at Hen House. Susan, one, one of our neighbors, had saw the, saw the moving truck, uh, maybe saw me in my franticness, I don't know, but said, hey, I can do something to share with this family. I can welcome this family in and bring a meal to them. We went over to her house and got the food, and, and uh, we got home and sat among the boxes and, and had some really good food. And it was a crazy day, but we ended our day in like a place of peace. You know, there was things kind of settled down. There was a bit of peace at the end of our day because a neighbor said, I want to share. I want to I reach out. I want to make a difference in their, in their day because she knew moving days are not fun days, you know. Let me, let me come and help. This is the kind of life that John is inviting us to live. A life that says, I'm going to share with you. I'm not going to grab for more. I'm going to be content with where I am. And I'm struck as I'm reading in chapter 3 here, the people's response. 
It says they're waiting expectantly. They're all wondering, is John the one? Is he the promised one, the, the prince of peace that Isaiah talked about? And John is quick to redirect them. He says, that's not me. I'm here to prepare the way for the one who's coming because I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, but he is on his way. And, and, and he says, it's not me. There's one coming. And he's going to, I'm baptizing with water, John says. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He says, the Spirit of God is going to come down on people. And that's, that fire, that refining fire, that fire that calls us to account, calls us to accountability is going to show up and change our lives. John says, there's one who's coming, and it's not me. And, and this is even made clear in, in another one of the stories of Jesus in the, in the Bible, the fourth book of the Bible, which is called John as well. Not the same John the Baptist. This is a different John, one of the followers of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years, wrote five different books in the New Testament. And, and John wrote about this experience uh, that John the Baptist was having. And, and at one point in John's life, John the Baptist's life, Jesus had come and baptized, and, and Jesus had begun to teach and minister to people in the community. And a lot of the people that were with John the Baptist started following Jesus. All the commotion, all the people that came to see John in the wilderness were now going to see Jesus. And some of John's disciples come to him, and they say, hey, this new guy, this new guy, Jesus, everybody's going to see him. Everybody's, they're hanging out with him now, aren't you? What, what about us? What about us? Rabbi, what about us? And so in John chapter 3, here's what John the Baptist says. To this, John replied, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Complete, that's that, that's contentment. And you're wondering what contentment is? It's that feeling of completion and peace and joy. And then John says this, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. It's quite a statement. This guy out in the wilderness, crowds, hundreds of people coming out to him. It would have been so easy for John to grab onto power, to keep the attention of the crowd, to continue to do things so he'd have more influence and more, more followers. And, and he could have stoked that if he wanted to. But he understood and was content with who he was and who God called him to be. And he said, I must become less. Jesus must become more. The people were looking and listening for the Messiah. 400 years had been waiting. John is there speaking. He could have easily said, follow me. I'll show you the way. Instead, he said, I must become less. Peace is found in less, not more. And he uses this great, John uses this example of a wedding. If you went to a wedding and, and the best man got up to give the toast after the wedding. And he spent 10 or 15 minutes talking about himself. You, you would lean over to the person with you and you'd be like, I think this guy's missing the point, right? Wouldn't you? Like he's talking all about, he's supposed to be talking about the bride and the groom. They're the ones that need the attention. They're the ones that we're here for, that we're, you know, we're excited about. And that's what John was saying. I, 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 the groom is here, he was saying. And I'm here to celebrate what he is doing. I need to become less. He needs to become more. This is not the message we hear at Christmas in our culture today. This is not the message we hear as we watch TV or listen to the radio. We're, we're told time and time again that we are one purchase away from contentment. We are one purchase away from peace. If you get this thing, it's going to change your life. You know, that's the message we hear this time of year. And Jesus and, and John the Baptist, they offer us a very different way. I want to share just a couple advertisements I found this week that talk about this, this thing that we hear in our culture. Here's the first one. Ready Whip, share the joy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you feel about Ready Whip. It's good. 
But I don't think it equals joy. You know, I don't think it's the same as joy that, that God wants to offer us. Do you guys take the ready whip and just shoot it in your mouth right in front of the fridge? Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be sitting there on the couch, and I'll hear the fridge door open, and then hear that sound, you know, and like somebody's in the ready whip, you know. And so it, it's good, but ready whip equals joy? I, I don't think so. Here's another one. Open a Coke and open happiness. All right, Coke, settle down a little bit, you know. It's like you're... Your bubbly brown water, you know. Uh, so it just, it doesn't equal happiness. You know, there's other things going on in our lives that bring us joy and happiness, not, not Coke. Okay, one more here. Change your life with bacon. <laughs> wow, that's a bold statement. That's not just happiness or joy. That's a totally different life because of bacon. That better be some pretty great bacon. I don't know if you guys go to First Watch, they have that million-dollar bacon. I wouldn't eat it, by the way. It's like, it'll take your heart out. But maybe that will change your life. But uh, that's quite the bold statement. These are, I mean, these are kind of simple little things. We, we kind of laugh about it. But there's products out there that make claims over our lives. They say, if you want to find joy, if you want to find contentment, if you want to find real life, just come and buy it. We got it for you. This is the story we hear at Christmas. And John speaks into that. And Jesus speaks into that. And he says, if you want to experience peace this Christmas. It's going to require less, not more. That purchase is not going to fill the empty places of your life. That new thing is going to feel good for a little while, but it's not going to bring you real peace. I'm looking for a relationship with God, with my creator. I'm looking for a good relationship with those who live around me, those in my family. That kind of peace comes as we make ourselves less and, and make Jesus more. Let's go back to Paul's letter in that Greek city of Philippi, when I'm not sure what this actually looks like, what does it mean to live in a, in a less? What does that actually look like? I'll go to Jesus. What is Jesus's example for us? If, if I'm a Christian, if I want to be like Jesus, uh, what is his example? And Paul writes about his example here in Philippians 2. Paul says, you should think in the same way Christ Jesus does. All right, so here's how Jesus thought. I want to be like him, so I'm going to think in the same way. In Jesus's very nature, he was God. But he did not think that being equal with God was something he should hold on to. Some translations say that he grasped onto. He doesn't think he had to grasp onto that. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human form. He appeared as a man. He came down to the lowest level. He obeyed God completely, even though it led to his death. So Jesus gives us this great example of what does it look like to be less. What does it look like to live as less? He says it, it has to do with taking on the nature of a servant and obeying God completely. If you want to experience peace this Christmas, you're going to need to serve and obey. Serve others and obey God. I don't, I don't think I need to define those terms too much for us. Serve and obey. We, we know what that means, and we don't like it. Right? We, we like it when people serve us. We like making our own way through life, doing our own thing. We like our freedoms. And God says, I've got a way of life for you that is real life. That is the best life you will ever have. I created you. I know you. Follow my way. We want to obey God and serve others. How can we lift others up? How can we serve them? Serve and obey. What would it look like if you started each day just saying, how can I serve those I'm going to see today? Instead of always being served or wanting to be served, how can I serve them. And of course, this starts at home, right? Starts in our house. So when you wake up, who's the first person you see? How can you serve them? You know, is it a roommate? Is it a kid? Is it a spouse? Is it a, maybe the neighbor is the first one you see as you start your day. How can you serve them? 
How can you encourage them in this day? And then you jump in the car and maybe head to work or to school or on an errand. How can you serve others who are driving around you? We don't often think about serving other drivers, do we? When you come to the four-way stop, I'm not thinking, how can I serve here, right? I'm like, how can I, when I'm merging on the highway, are you, a, are you a gracious merger on the highway? I'm not very good at this. You know, I'm like, you don't cut in front of me, you know? How can we serve others while we're driving around? As you're heading home and you stop by the grocery store or maybe go through the fast food line, how can you serve those who are checking out your groceries or handing you that bag of food? You know, how can you do that? Just, how are you doing today? How's your day been? Thanks so much for taking care of me today. Look them in the eye. Be reminded they're real people. The image of God is in them. God loves them. How can you serve them and encourage them? And not just rush away, but take a moment to serve someone else. Jesus created everything in the world. All that we see is held together by Jesus. Scripture tells us that he is the one who created all that we see. And he said, I've come here to serve. He lowered himself and served those around him. At one point, he, he was washing his disciples' feet. You can't get much more subservient than that. It was so subservient that one of his disciples said, you're not going to wash my feet. You're my rabbi. You're, you're the one I'm following. You're not going to touch my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you're going to have nothing to do with me because this is the way of life that I've come to bring, a life of service. You want to find peace this Christmas. It's going to require less. It's going to require service and obedience to God and to his people. I'm so glad that we have these words of Scripture that remind us of what is true and good, that God loves us and cares about us, that he wants to bring peace into our lives, and that he's given us these examples, John the Baptist, Jesus, others who help us understand what does it mean to walk in peace. To do this, it's going to take a changed heart and a changed mind, and God's the only one that can do that. So let's take a minute together right now and just pray and invite God to change us and work in our lives. Uh, Will you pray with me? Father God, we're so thankful for this time together, for the stories of Scripture that remind us that you do care about our lives, that you created us for a relationship with you and with one another, and that the peace that we're seeking this Christmas, Father, that you offer it to us, and it requires less of us. It requires us to serve and to obey and to lift you up. Father, I pray that you would help us In the midst of our circumstances, Lord, you know every story in this room. You know those that are going through this season uh, having lost a loved one and missing their presence in these special days. You see those here who are not sure their job is going to make it into the new year. They're not sure how they're going to make it financially. There's others here, Father, who have a relationship in their life that's really difficult right now, really strained. Lord, you you see the areas in our life where we, we need peace. And so we invite you, Father, we just lift these things to you. We ask that you would give us your peace. And as we make you great, we make ourselves less, that you would give us your peace, Father. Settle it down upon us. We don't even need to understand it. Just bring it to us. We want to live in a new way. And we thank you for helping us do that. It's in your name, Father God, that we pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.